You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. How will Dr. Kevorkian be remembered, hero or villain? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is John Carney. Mr. Carney is the Vice President of Aging and End of Life at the Center for Bioethics in Kansas City, Missouri, with 20 years of hospice, palliative care, and healthcare management experience. He is an expert in end-of-life advocacy, education, regulatory, and legislative issues. Mr. Carney, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you, Susan. It's good to be with you. How do you think history will judge Dr. Kevorkian? I think that's an excellent question. I, I think the general public will regard him kind of oddly and, and unevenly. I think I think he's an odd character. If you've seen him in interviews or anything, even during the, his heyday when he was out doing his thing, I think there was a general impression that he was just kind of a different sort of type. I think his profession will judge him much more harshly. I think that there are many, many physicians who feel that he has, has turned his back on the profession and taken the easy way out. But I genuinely believe that he's very sincere. I know he's very sincere, and he, and I think he'll honor the terms of his parole and, and hopefully stay away from doing anything that's illegal and whatever resort to preaching if that's, what he, if that's what he chooses. What do you mean by taking the easy way out? The problem with end of life in the United States is there's so much technology that we can put it there, and there are, there's a huge reluctance as a people in really discussing what's going on inside of us and what our wishes are and our dreams and, and how we approach our fears and those kind of things. And we often opt for not dealing with that part, not having those discussions with family members and saying, I'm sorry, and say, I love you, and what does my life mean, and what legacy do I leave? And those kind, those are very, very difficult questions. And sometimes it's just easier just to say, okay, I don't want to live like that and end it. And we need to do a better job of helping people deal with that last stage of their life and being able to deal with those other issues. Explain the differences between euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia, and physician-assisted dying. Well, let me put it this way. There's basically three ways that you deal with kind of the treatment questions. So there's involuntary and non-voluntary and voluntary. Let me, let me explain those a little bit. Involuntary is when you do something to somebody without their knowledge or consent, okay? Non-voluntary is when you do something on behalf of someone to them following their directive or a substituted judgment kind of thing or best interest. Uh, a voluntary is doing something to a patient because they tell you to do that, that thing to them. And then there's also this issue of kind of passive and non-aggressive and aggressive euthanasia. So their passive is, well, not giving common treatment, not doing antibiotics, not doing surgery, administering treatments that actually may hasten death, you know, pain medication, that if you give way more than what the, you know, to be able to take care of the patient, it may actually have a negative impact on their care or something like that. Non-aggressive is kind of withholding or, or withdrawing those life-prolonging or death-delaying treatments, like a respirator, that kind of thing. And then aggressive is, is providing a method. So in the United States, involuntary euthanasia is not allowed anywhere. We can never intervene and take the life of a patient by doing anything or not doing anything if we don't know. We, we must kind of act to protect their interests. Non-voluntary, both passive and non-aggressive, is allowed everywhere. Patients have the right to be able to choose and refuse treatment wherever. So that kind of non-voluntary, not doing something, following their directive or substituting their judgment, 
is allowed in every state in the union in uh, a non-aggressive way. Okay, voluntary aggressive, which is this following the direct instructions of a patient and providing the method for them to end their life, is only allowed in the state of Oregon. So that's kind of how those three things work together. How do you characterize what Dr. Kevorkian did? He actually did voluntary aggressive euthanasia outside the state of Oregon. He did it anywhere anybody wanted him to. He not only provided the means, actually, well, he did it aggressively. So he went in and provided the actual cause the death of the patient and did it without really subject to any law and, you know, did not follow those the, the rule of law. And that's what got him in jail. What other states have pending physician-assisted dying legislation? Well, most of the state legislatures have concluded their work for the spring. In the state of Vermont, I believe it was defeated in the House. It did make it to the floor, and it was defeated. There was one measure there. In California, I think was the only other place this last year where it made it out of a committee. It made it out of a judiciary committee, but no further action was taken. And I think at one point there was a suggestion that we might see a more active session as a result of the Supreme Court decision from a couple years ago with the Oregon case with the United States Attorney General deciding that this wasn't a good use of medicine to be able to prescribe medication. And with the result of the fact that the Supreme Court said, you know, the Attorney General had no jurisdiction there, that they thought that there might be more states around the country that would pursue assisted suicide legislation, but it didn't happen, which I think really kind of goes back to the American public's kind of rejection in general of this notion that we just simply need to do a better job of providing care for dying people and not focus so much on trying to end the life of very vulnerable patients. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Mr. John Carney, the Vice President of Aging and End of Life at the Center for Practical Bioethics in Kansas City, Missouri, discussing Dr. Kevorkian, euthanasia, and physician-assisted dying. Mr. Carney, what countries outside the United States allow euthanasia and or physician-assisted dying? Well, there's only two in the world, Belgium and the Netherlands, are the only two countries that allow for any type of physician-assisted death, and they have very, very specific requirements. The Netherlands tweaks their bill all the time, and they're very concerned about making sure that it's done properly and for the right reasons with the right people in terms of terminally ill and those kind of things. So they're both very, very concerned about making sure that, it, if you will, doesn't get out of hand. What does the research reveal about Oregon, Belgium, and the Netherlands? Research that's been done on the Oregon law, which is very interesting. I, I think there were some kind of takeaways that would surprise people. First of all, that doctors are not all of one mind, that it happens very, very rarely. That's the other thing. It's the, even in the state of Oregon, where you can get the medication from the physician to be able to take, it oftentimes isn't even used in many cases. There's only about... 15 per 10,000 deaths that actually result as a result of the Oregon law. So it, it's not the problem, I think, that many people carry around with them thinking that it is. It also appears that palliative care and hospice care have increased as a result of the law. So there's been good in this kind of tragic experience. So we've done a better job of providing good palliative care. A little bit of a concern that physicians aren't particularly well informed on how to deal with actually prescribing the medication or the intervention that would end the life of the patient. They don't feel very confident in being able to do it, and many of them are not well informed about it. Finally, the last one is how the doctor feels about this issue, him or herself, has a significant impact on the relationship with the patient and can actually disrupt the patient relationship 
as a result of the convictions that the physician him or herself holds. Some of Dr. Kevorkian's critics say he was not well informed about palliative care and hospice. Do you agree? I think in general that there's probably a bias on my part, having come from that part of my professional background, certainly that he didn't pursue all the things that could be for those patients and families and not I think, involving other psychosocial professionals in the development of, of his plan of care. He pretty much relied on, on families that um, decided this is what they wanted to do, and they knew, what, and there really wasn't any question on his part about intervening or trying to help them. I think, I think in general, not just me, but I think many people from the medical professional felt that it really wasn't, he did not do a good job of, of really resolving the issues with families. What is the Center for Practical Bioethics position on physician-assisted dying? Well, our position is similar to the AMA's, is that it really is physician-assisted death is fundamentally incompatible with, with good care. If we could do a better job, and we can do a better job, of providing good care to people in the final stages of their illness, physician-assisted death would simply go away as a, as a medical problem because we have the capacity to deal with pain. We have the capacity to deal with the psychosocial dimensions, the spiritual dimensions of care. We can do this better if we just put our mind to it. Medicine in this country has been proven that it can do just about anything, and if we make this a priority, we can resolve this problem. Give your best advice for medical professionals who are asked by patients and families about physician-assisted dying? I think getting at what the patient and the family is really asking is the most important thing. You know, are, are these questions about being a burden and a fear of the disease process? Is it about risks and benefits of treatment when you're dealing with a fatal diagnosis? You know this, this disease is probably going to take your life. So what are the real issues? Is it financial? Is it, you know, are these concerns about dignity? You know, and, and many of them are. I don't want to see my life deteriorate to the point where I cannot communicate. I can't take care of myself, those kind of things. And understanding how our roles change is, is in terms of the patient job, you know, the work that we have to do as a patient in terms of our duties as, as human beings and being able to, again, to say I love you and say goodbye and those kind of things. That Those are all important aspects of our care and our job as human beings and really helping families and patients Sort those issues out because in many cases, that's what's prompting these questions about, well, I don't want to live like that or I can't see myself putting up with that. To really get at that kind of, if, if it is a matter of treatment, if it's a matter of pain or whatever, to help comfort those patients and make sure that they understand that we can deal with those issues. What do you see as the future of end-of-life care? Well, my hope is that we do a better job of providing comfort care in a meaningful way in terms of really taking palliative care to its full extent so that we're dealing with all aspects, comprehensive aspects, that we do a much better job of dealing with the chronic diseases and the comorbidities that accompany chronic disease in helping families deal with final stages of their illness and understanding what those final stages look like and how my role changes in terms of my job as a patient, whether it's you know maintaining, taking my medications, doing my therapy, or whether they move into other methods and important aspects of my care as I age or as the illness progresses, as the disease progresses, to really help me deal with those issues. It's an area of growth, uh, obviously, with the baby boomers. We're not going to deal with it, those of us in our 50s and 60s, we're not going to deal with end of life the way our parents did, and we're not going to put up with living in nursing homes. So we've got to come up with a better way of dealing with end of life questions all the way, you know, further upstream, much further upstream. It's not six weeks out. It's not six months out. You know, we need to be talking about what does my life look like? What's my plan for the next, you know, six years? And really begin to say, where do I want to go with this? What does it look like for me? 
and what are my goals and dreams? What's my job as a patient to be able to care for my family and to leave my legacy and to say my goodbyes in a, in a proper way? What resources are available for doctors to learn more? There are a number of training programs. There's the EPIC program, which I'm sure many of your, your listeners are familiar with. It's the Education for Physician and End-of-Life Care, and they've done an excellent job of building a curriculum. There's the Center for the Advancement of Palliative Care in New York that's done a terrific job, especially in the acute care setting in expanding the understanding and education for physicians related to palliative care. And palliative care is still an emerging field and getting more and more knowledge base in terms of what we can do to make sure that we're providing alternatives to aggressive treatment. Mr. Carney, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.